Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn them to the book of Nahum, chapter 3. Uh, if you've never heard of Nahum, you go like half, you open it to like halfway and you'll be in Psalms, and then you go a little bit farther. Uh, it's a pretty short book. It's only three chapters. If you're in Jonah or Micah, go a little bit farther. If you get to Habakkuk or Zephaniah, go back a little bit. Uh, as you do that, it might take time. Uh, my name's Tyler, like I said. Uh, as always, I'm honored to be preaching while Matt is far away in Romania. Uh, I heard he preached a sermon at 3 a.m. this morning, our time, so I'm, uh, I trust that that went well. Um, and if you've heard me preach before, you'll, you may have noticed a theme in how I decide what to preach on. Uh, when, when Matt asks me to preach, I go to my Bible and I find something that confuses me or makes me uncomfortable or is strange, and then I preach on that. Uh, today is no exception. Like I said, I'm preaching on Micah. It's a three-chapter book of prophecy. And the simplest description of Nahum is that Nahum is God's prophetic word about the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, some of you have probably heard of Nineveh. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and the Assyrians were the ones who deported the northern half of Israel. Uh, the northern and southern parts of Israel, at this point in the biblical story, are split up. And Assyria has come in, taken the northern kingdom away, uh, exiled them, dispersed them all over their empire, never to fully return. Um, and so on first glance, that seems like Nahum doesn't seem that concerning, right? Th- these people deported half of Israel, and now they're being punished for it. I have to be honest, though, this book is really difficult. Um, it's not so much the premise, it's the, it's the tone. Um, like I said, we'll be reading Nahum 3, 1 through 7. Um, but before we get there, I, I have to tell a, a short story. So last fall, uh, I had a student who wanted to read her Bible more. And so she said, Tyler, what do I read? And so for like a month, we did kind of a, like a little Bible book club where from Wednesday to Wednesday, we'd read a book and then the next Wednesday, we'd talk about it. Uh, and when we got to Nahum, because neither of us knew much about it, the first thing she asked me was, why is this book in the Bible? Um, and I didn't know how to answer her right away. So the, the seeds for this sermon were planted like a year ago in my heart. Um, but it, it evidences that this is, this is a hard book. Um, I'll show you what I mean. We'll read Nahum 3, 1 through 7, and I will warn you, um, these verses are relatively graphic. Uh, they're kind of tough. I'm, I'm not reading them because I want to shock you. Like, I'm not reading them because I want to be edgy. Um, I'm just reading them because I think they show us why this book is hard. Um, I, I don't think God always communicates in ways that are easy for us. So... With that in mind, if you would all stand in honor of God and his word, uh, I'm going to read Nahum 3, verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to pray. So this is Nahum 3. It says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, 
who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Dear Jesus, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it challenges us. Uh, Thank you for even the confusing things that you've put in this book. Um, I pray that you'll bless us as we talk about Nahum. I pray that we will see your justice and your love through this book. Uh, And I pray that we will see how even this passage, as difficult as it might be upon first read, points us at you. I love you, Lord. I pray that it's your spirit speaking. Thank you for the honor and the terror and the joy that it is to be a pastor. I love you, Lord. Amen. You guys can sit down. So, as I said, those verses are kind of graphic. There there is a little bit of a shock factor to them. Um, And they're not isolated. Like, that's that's an illustration of the book of Nahum. It's this... almost like a a brutality. Um, And for me, as I read this, and for my student as well, uh, passages like this raised a couple of questions. Uh, I'll share two. Number one, how do I reconcile this passage and this book with a loving God? Um, If you're familiar with 1 John 4, it's, it's ringing in my head as, as I read Nahum. First uh, John 4, 8 says, anyone who, has not loved, or, yeah, anyone who has not loved does not know God, for God is love. How do I make sense of the God of First John 4, who's literally defined as love, and this picture of, of a, a vengeful and wrathful God who says, I am against you, I will pelt you with filth. That's the first question. How, how do I reconcile those two, those two pictures of God? Because that doesn't fit, it doesn't fit what I want God to be, and it doesn't even really fit the God that was described to me most of the time growing up. I mean, I didn't go through Nahum much when I was a kid. I don't know about you guys, if you grew up in the church. Um, so that's my first question. How, how do we see a God of love in this book? And number two, the question that my student asked me is a very good question. Why is this book in the Bible? Um, And especially, why is this book in the Bible with what we already know about Nineveh? Um, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that there is one other prophet, one other minor prophet, who spends extensive time talking about Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's Jonah. Jonah was probably writing about 100 years before Nahum. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. 100's a good estimate. And about 100 years before Nahum, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent, tell them to turn from their sin and follow God. And after a, a brief incident with a fish, eventually Jonah made it there. And he called Nineveh to repent and turn to God, and they did. So why is Nahum here? Like, if they repented 100 years ago with Jonah, why are we subjected to this bloody, gory depiction of their destruction? Those are my two biggest questions with this book as I was going into this. How, how do we see a God of love 
and why is this here? Um, before we proceed, I have to pause for a sec because I need to set our expectations appropriately as we talk about this. Um, our goal in studying the Bible, at my goal in preaching the Bible, cannot simply be to make it easy. Because if the Bible was actually truly written by an almighty being with a mind infinitely greater than mine, there are going to be things in it that are difficult for me. Um, Josiah is my friend, my oldest friend. Uh, we've been friends since he was born because I'm two years older. I will always have that over him. Um, we had a lot of Sunday school classes together, and my dad would say this all the time. He said it to me, he would say it to both of us, that if everything in the Bible made perfect sense to human beings, like if all of it made perfect sense to us, we could systematize it, get it, get it down perfectly, that might be an indication that only human beings were behind it. The fact that there are tough things in the Bible that we have to puzzle about, I mean, it's not, it's not proof in a scientific sense, but it's a helpful indication that maybe there's something more going on here. So my goal in this is not to make this easy because I don't think it is easy. My goal in this time is that we will understand God as he's revealed himself. That we'll faithfully seek to see how God is revealing himself in Nahum, even if that doesn't remove all of our confusion or all of our our uncertainty. So with that being said, Nahum 3 and Nahum as a whole. I think in this book, in this passage in the book as a whole, I think God is showing us two of his qualities very clearly. I think he's showing us his justice. And this might be surprising, given what I've been saying and given the book, but I think he's also showing us his love. So we'll talk justice first. Uh, I'm firmly convinced that the destruction of Nineveh and the fall of Assyria as a whole is uh, like a perfect, like a crystal clear demonstration of God's justice. To understand this, we need to understand the Assyrians, the, the people of whom Nineveh was the capital city. Assyria was a brutal people. They, I, I won't go too far into their brutality because it, it's, it's, it's too graphic for the pulpit. Um, but their torture was intense. Um, mass execution was a very common thing for them. I mean, I, I was, as I was studying Assyria and studying this passage, I was drawn to, to Nahum 3.4, uh, or Nahum 3.3, where it says, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. That was, a, that was an Assyrian practice, was to, to get that many corpses piled up and just execute all of their enemies to get them out of the way. The, the craziest thing was they were proud of that. Like, this wasn't like a secret... This, this was different from the Holocaust where the Germans were kind of hiding it. Like, the Assyrians advertised this so that people would fear them. Their brutality was so much that when you read the history, like when you read Assyrian history, this isn't, this isn't their enemies. When you read about the Assyrians, what they said about themselves, and you look at their accounts of their own people, today's psychologists conclude that the Assyrian soldiers probably had PTSD from the trauma that they both saw and the atrocities they committed. 
the Assyrians were brutal. And the, again, they didn't hide it. it. It was advertised. Like there, there are stone carvings and wood carvings showing their torture methods so that when other nations saw it, they would fear them. They practiced child sacrifice. They, they would impale people live and, and many other things that were more brutal even than that. Brutal is the best word for the Assyrians. And thankfully, the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, is not one who allows sin to go unpunished. And these grievous and appalling sins of the Assyrians were treated to severe punishment, as is depicted in Nahum. Another angle, though, that I I have to discuss as we talk about God's justice, this is a a question that popped into my head near the end of my time studying this. Could the Assyrians have known any better? Like, we would all agree that the actions of the Assyrians are terrible. But were they just naive? Like, did God destroy a people and call it justice who really just didn't know any better? I think we have to say no to that for, again, two reasons. I'm all about twos this morning. Um, Number one, according to the Bible, no. Assyria would have no excuse. Nineveh has no excuse because every human being has the law of God in their hearts. Even though Assyria didn't have God's law as in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy back at the beginning of the Bible to Israel and Judah, they still had God's law in their hearts. This is, this is like directly from Paul. I'm going to read Romans 2, verses 14 through 15. This is what Paul says about it. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles, those are the Assyrians, they, they would be Gentiles. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times, even defending them. So even though Nineveh didn't have God's law in the same way Israel did, they still had no excuse. They still had the law of God in them, accusing them, and if they acted rightly, even defending them. Even if you don't buy that, though, like say, say you just throw out Romans, which I think would be a huge mistake, but say you did that. You said, no, I don't buy this law of God on my heart thing. They still had no excuse because of Jonah, right? Like a hundred years beforehand, but probably, you know, just a generation or two before, I guess grandparents, great-grandparents, somewhere in there. A hundred years beforehand, Jonah had come and said, you're not acting rightly. Repent, change your ways. And they did. And just a few decades later, uh, a couple generations later, it's clear that they've gone right back to what they've been doing for centuries. Oppressing the poor, uh, executing people brutally. They have no excuse. They have the law of God in their hearts, and they had a prophet of God in their midst telling them how how to turn back, and they didn't. In the long run, they didn't. What happens to Assyria here is just. God is demonstrating his justice in, in the book of Nahum. A people who have spent centuries oppressing the weak and relying on their own strength are brought low by a perfect judge. God's justice is displayed. But it's not only his justice. As I said, this may sound confusing the first couple times I say it, but 
I think God's love is also displayed in the book of Nahum. Nahum doesn't just show God's relentless justice, it shows his relentless love. Consider Israel, God's chosen people. At this point in the story, as I said, the northern kingdom is a scattered people. They're, they're scattered all over the Assyrian Empire, which is most of the known world at this point in history. They're removed from the promised land. And at the same time, Judah, the southern part of Israel, is oppressed. This is a low point for them uh, before the exile, which is later in the story. Judah in the south is oppressed and battered. They're threatened by these same Assyrians. Actually, if you read... If you read uh, the, the, it's in like Second Kings, um, the Assyrians go so far as saying we're speaking for God when they weren't. That they were claiming the name of Yahweh without being taught by Yahweh, without being commanded by Yahweh. Yet even though they're weak, even when Judah is at its weakest point, God's love for His people shines through. Nahum doesn't doesn't just show that God's justice will deal with evil. It shows that even that justice is providing and protecting for and loving the oppressed who are his people. If you remember from the beginning, my, my first question was, how do we see a God of love in Nahum? How, how does the, the wrath and, and avenging nature of God in this book show God's love? I think when we look at this properly, we understand the context and we understand not just the justice, but also God's provision for his people we see that the justice and wrath, for me at least, that were the most concerning, are wrapped like intimately together with his love. Because, my mouth gets so dry, I'm sorry. God is not, God is not acting this way. God is not showing his justice. God is not like executing his wrath on Assyria because he hates people. He, he's not looking at the Assyrian men and women, and he's definitely not looking at the Assyrian children that have been sacrificed and saying, yeah, I hate them. God doesn't do this to Nineveh because he hates people. He's doing it because he hates sin, and he hates the effects of sin, and he hates it so much and loves his people so much that he will deal with sin in the way that it deserves. He, he will not go easy on sin. That It's something that God will not do. And in this... That this was the light bulb. That in this we see that Nineveh isn't a one-off. Like Nineveh is not a, a crazy story of something wild that happened 2,500 years ago that doesn't matter anymore. Nineveh is a pattern. Nineveh shows us a pattern that's been repeated throughout history, which is that humans oppress humans, and eventually they receive the due penalty for that. God's beautiful and terrifying combination of perfect love and perfect justice will make an end to sin. Now, before I move on, I need to say one more thing about God's love and justice. Because as I said, it, it is a lot. Like, it, it is difficult to, it's difficult to take that. Especially when we read the the depictions of what justice truly looks like in Nahum. The one thing I'll say is that it's way better that God is like this. It's way better that God is how he is than if he were to be how I assumed he was when I was growing up. Because the God that I wanted was one who was light on sin, one who, 
even if you did something wrong, would say, no, it's okay, you're fine, pat, pat, just don't do it again. We don't actually want that. Like, the, the courtroom analogy is used a lot, but I'll use it one more time because I think it's a good one. If I were to walk into court, if someone killed someone I love, if I walk into court and the judge looks at the murderer and says, yes, you did it, yes, you're guilty, but sure, you can go. There's not going to be any punishment for that. I'm just going to let you off. That is not a good judge. That judge is not being just, and in the case of God, if God does that, that is not being loving. We don't want a God who lets child traffickers, murderers, thieves, we don't want a judge that lets sinners off free because that is not the loving or just thing to do. So this combination of love and justice challenges us, and it always will. And yet, this is the God that we need. This is the God who is ultimately worth worshiping, one who doesn't let those who do wrong get away with it. I think Nahum shows us God's love and God's justice and how relentless those things are. Now, at this point, we need to jump forward a little bit. Uh, We need to talk about what this means for us. Because like I said, Nahum's an example. Uh, It's not not a one-off that has no relation to our lives. And I would hope at this point we can move forward with this understanding that God shows his love and justice and that that combination is a good thing. We want a judge who judges rightly. Here is the difficulty, though. If Nahum is revealing that those who sin, as Assyria did, if Nahum is revealing that those who sin and those who do wrong and those who oppress humans and and don't treat them well and, and sin against God, if God is revealing that those people should expect God's wrath, that's a big problem for me. Like, okay, at this point in my life, I, I assume this will never happen. I've never murdered somebody. I've never tortured anybody. I have not developed PTSD as a result of the trauma I've inflicted on people. I have not done what Assyria has done. And yet, if this pattern is about humans oppressing humans and humans sinning against humans and humans sinning against God, I totally meet that criteria. I completely meet Nahum's criteria for punishment if that's the picture because I have sinned against man. I have sinned against God. And as a result, I deserve God's wrath. I guess to say it as simply as I can, Nahum is a terrifying book for sinners. And I am a sinner. As are, I would assume all of you, as are the people watching online, as is everyone in the world. Nahum is bad news for us because it shows that God is going to deal with sin how it deserves. It's in that place, like it's in that like terrifying space, feels like the walls are almost closing in, that the gospel is at its brightest. It's where the gospel shines the brightest. Because Nineveh, Nineveh spends centuries relying on their own strength. Nineveh spends centuries going off of their own power. And they suffered the consequences for that. If I do the same and try to live my life on my own strength 
and do what's right in my own eyes, I should expect the same. And yet, today, this is September 11th, 2022, I'm able to read Nahum and not fear. Like, I I can actually read Nahum and live in hope. And I'm not doing that because God has ignored love and justice in dealing with me. Like, it's not, it's not that God decided to be the, the unjust judge with me only, and that's why I can live in hope. I can have hope because God himself took the consequence for me. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, died on a cross, took the wrath of God that I was supposed to take, took, took all of the brutality of Nahum and other places where it talks about God's wrath on himself so that I wouldn't have to. That's the only reason that I can have hope. Like, Nahum is not in the Bible by accident. Like, Nahum's not even here so that we can look at the Ninevites and say, wow, they were so bad and they really got what was coming to them. That's not why this is here. Nahum's in the Bible to show that, he is, that God is relentlessly loving and relentlessly just and relentlessly opposed to sin and evil. And in doing that, in, in doing that very well, we see how seriously God takes sin and how intensely humans who sin need a savior. Like, Nahum makes this category, and in doing so, he points to the center of the Bible, the the center of the biblical story, which is Jesus Christ, the one who took the full extent of God's wrath upon himself so that people who are united with him don't have to. God didn't go easy on Jesus on the cross. All of the wrath that was deserved for human beings to take was poured out on Jesus. And Jesus, God himself, the only one who didn't deserve it, like the only one who didn't have to take that on himself, took it. And for people who are united with him, that covers our sin. Like, that is what being saved means. Like, we're saved for a holy life and we're saved from the wrath of God by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So what does that mean? Like, how do we live in light of that? Because if you remember, and maybe experienced as I've been talking, I said at the beginning that this book makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Like, it can be hard to be at peace as we read a book about the wicked being destroyed, especially when we remember that apart from Christ, we are also wicked. And especially when we remember that we know people who don't know Christ. But even Nahum himself, in, in this book, amid this like, prophetic storm of God's wrath, even Nahum's able to encourage Judah. Judah, God's people in the south who are oppressed, threatened by these Assyrians. I, I, let me read one more verse. This is Nahum 1.15, same book. It says, Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So again, even in this, the wicked will be completely destroyed. And Judah wasn't righteous themselves. And like there, there are a lot of pages in this book devoted to how thoroughly Israel and Judah got it wrong. And yet, only because Judah was God's people, Judah had united themselves and followed God, that in this storm, 
they're told to have peace. There's, there's one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Only because they were united with God, and for us, only because we're united by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we experience peace. It's because of the salvation that's through him alone. If you would not put yourself in that camp, like if you would not say, I'm united with Christ, like if you would not call yourself a Christian, I'm not going to go fire and brimstone on you. Like I'm not going to, like, if you, if you want a, a picture of God's wrath, you can read the whole book of Nahum. I would just invite you to follow Jesus because of that, but also because of the peace. Like, despite the fact that I sin every single day and I'm against people every single day and I know that and I know that that's wrong and I know that that should be punished I'm able to live day by day in peace and in hope and in joy and that's something that if you aren't following Jesus you can also experience by uniting yourself to him so yeah God's wrath is a real thing I think we've talked about that a lot during this sermon. But the peace that surpasses all understanding can be ours through Jesus Christ who who guards our hearts and our minds. And that's, I mean, that's that's the call for, for us that are following Jesus. Walk in peace. Not a peace that exists because you did something so great, but a peace that comes from knowing that we're saved from our sins because of God's perfect love and perfect justice that he displayed in Jesus. I think that's all I have. I'm going to pray, and then I think there's one more song. Dear Jesus, uh, thank you for you. Thank you for living. Thank you for being the only one who lived the perfect life. Like, thank you for, for being the only one who didn't have to die for his sins and then dying for mine and for everyone in this room, and for everyone watching online, and for everyone who's ever lived, Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you that if it was only me, you still would have died. I thank you for the peace that comes in your name. Um, I pray that those of us who haven't decided to follow you, that we'll feel the need in our hearts for you, and turn to you, because you are our only hope. I pray that you'll bless this day, uh, and I thank you for the words that hopefully your spirit was speaking through me, Lord. I love you. Amen.